Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello and thank you for listening to this week's episode of Speak Up. I'm Moira McKenna, a clinical speech pathologist on the beautiful northwest coast of Tasmania. Like many rural clinicians, I've had a varied work history, working across the lifespan and across the clinical continuum. But now I'm working in the community with adults with chronic conditions. And today I feel very lucky to be talking with Jazz Sakon. Jazz is a speech pathologist, currently working clinically part-time at a not-for-profit community health service in Metro Melbourne. Over the last 30 years, Jazz has worked across the continuum of care in public health services, both in Singapore and in Victoria, Australia. Jazz is a PhD student and has recently submitted her thesis for examination. Congratulations, Jazz. Thank you. Her PhD focused on studies to enable speech pathologists to feel confident and competent using counselling to support the psychological well-being of individuals with post-stroke aphasia and their families. Jazz's supervisors were Professors Jennifer Oates, Miranda Rose, and Professor Ian Kneebone. Jazz is a Community of Practice member for the Centre of Research Excellence in Aphasia Recovery and Rehabilitation based at La Trobe University in Melbourne. She has been involved in the aphasia community for many years, and she co-convenes the inaugural online Australian Aphasia Association National Conference over five Wednesdays in June last year. Jazz, welcome to Speak Up and tell me, how did you develop your passion for the psychological care of people with aphasia? Thank you, Moira. It's a pleasure to be here today and I'd like to thank Speech Pathology Australia for this opportunity to speak um, about this research, which I've done for the past eight years. Um, so I'm really delighted to be able to share um, some of the knowledge that I've gained. It's such an important topic. I'm so, I'm, I, I do feel very lucky to be having this chat with you. Thanks, Moira. Look, um, I certainly developed this passion for um, psychological care from my own clinical experience. So as mentioned, I've worked across the continuum of care, but largely in community-based rehabilitation uh, and now community health. Um, and I frequently observed people with aphasia and their families experience great stress and great emotional upheaval um, alongside their day-to-day -day upheaval, you know, including um, financial activity loss, social um, changes, um, confidence, a whole range of emotional and psychological mm. issues. Yeah, I've had. Really... Yeah, 
I was yeah just going to say we really come into these people's lives at this time of extreme change and extreme loss um and it is such a such a big time to walk into somebody's life it is it is and so you know I really felt dissatisfied with my care I knew um I had um the knowledge I guess and I certainly felt that counseling um, or supporting emotions um, or or supporting the client in their stroke journey and post-stroke aphasia journey was definitely within my scope of practice. But I really just felt really dissatisfied in my care. And I felt, you know, um, whether it was uh, what the scope of my practice and how effective or was I really um, at in supporting these clients' um, emotions and psychological states. So in doing this research, um, I found that I was certainly not alone. As you mentioned, that speech pathologists are in the forefront, especially with people with aphasia. Um, and several survey studies of speech pathology practice in post-stroke aphasia rehabilitation from actually now um, we have surveys from Australia, US, UK and South Africa, um, finding that the majority of speech pathologists feel that they have low knowledge, low skills Mm -hmm. and low confidence to assess or manage emotional and psychological well-being um, of their clients with post-stroke aphasia and their families. So yeah. we're not alone. Yeah, and that that feels really true for me. And it's interesting, I think, when somebody's had a stroke and they've had that um, incredible, you know, brush with mortality and then often the upheaval that you talked about, that, you know, financial and social and, and all of the implications of that stroke. Tell me, has there been much research about the link between stroke and depression or anxiety? Yes. Um, yes, definitely. Um, so psychological issues uh, relating to adjustment are very common and um, basically experienced by most, if not all, of stroke survivors. We know wow. that. Yeah. So psychological processes and tasks, you know, as we know, include new routines, new relationships with health professionals and even other stroke survivors, new environments, the rehabilitation environment, the hospital environment. Um, And so there are adjustment and normalization issues, uh, including accepting the uncertainty of recovery or dealing with the fear of another stroke. Um, And even the process of setting goals, you know, realistic goals or confronting goals Mm. um, and maintaining hope. These are all the psychological issues and processes, I guess, that um, stroke survivors go through. So unfortunately, mood disorders such as depression and anxiety are common after stroke. So we know that approximately a third or about 33% of stroke survivors experience depression and approximately 20% experience anxiety after stroke. Suicide risk is also higher for stroke survivors and um, causes the death of about three or four people in 1,000 stroke survivors in the first five years um, after stroke. 
So definitely psychological issues um, for all stroke survivors um, is a common and real thing for speech pathologists to, to have that knowledge and to be able to then start the conversation or know what to do next. Mm. Is it any different for post-stroke survivors with or without aphasia? What's the impact of aphasia? Yeah, so past research has shown a strong association between aphasia and increased distress and depression. Um, A recent study by Zanella and colleagues um, just this year found that people with aphasia are seven and a half times more likely to develop depression after stroke compared with stroke survivors without aphasia. Wow, it's a huge impact. It's a huge, so seven and a half times more likely. And major depression um, increases across the first 12 months after stroke for people with aphasia. So people with aphasia not only are more likely to experience depression, but also suffer more severe and long-lasting depression Mm. compared to stroke survivors without aphasia. And with regards to anxiety, research by Eccles and colleagues suggests that there is also a greater occurrence of anxiety in people with aphasia after stroke compared to stroke survivors without aphasia, with prevalence up to about 44%. It's a huge problem, and I'm really glad that we're going to be talking about how how we can impact that it comes up in in my work all of the time and when I was looking through your research Jazz I was working um, with a gentleman I had an initial session booked for a gentleman um, with aphasia post-stroke and this was going to be his first speech pathology session since his discharge from hospital Um, he was discharged from rehabilitation earlier this year some months ago Um, and I was doing my home visit and I was doing, you know, a few repeat language assessments and some early goal setting and, you know, finding out about um, his function and and his life. But that session um, was uh, dominated by his weeping, you know, just that deep expression of sadness and, and, um, and it was a very emotionally heavy session, as, as many of those sessions are. And as I returned to my office later that afternoon and I was typing up my notes and I was, you know, talking about his presentation, I, you know, quickly rattled off, as I often do, the term emotionally labile. And then as I sat there reading up my own notes, I was thinking to myself, oh, gosh, like this gentleman has had his life deeply altered he is so trapped in his new experience of life like was he emotionally labile or was he actually just demonstrating the grief that he was feeling um and then I was reflecting did I write the term emotionally labile because I wasn't comfortable with his grief being grief that I needed to pathologize that in some way um you know in my clinical notes and 
and I want you to talk to me about do you think that that's a common experience for clinicians that that we often pathologize grief instead of allowing a person to walk through it and assisting them to walk through it yeah look um thanks for sharing uh, that uh, case uh, Moira as you say stroke and aphasia are significant life-changing events um, I've had people use the term devastation devastating losses um, and you know catastrophic uh, losses um, and people with aphasia um, and their families experience changes to their everyday conversations mm. and we know everyday conversations is the glue to relationships and the link to their life as they knew it, as they yeah, as they knew it. Mm. So um, grief and loss, or grief, is a natural and human um, expression um, to the loss of something of value to human beings. Um, but it is common for um, clinicians to think mental health uh, or an equate mental health to mental disorders or mental issues are often synonymous with mental disorders. Mm. And mental health or psychological well-being is actually a continuum from disorder at one end um, to flourishing at the other end. And as humans, we all have the potential to be at either end depending on the circumstances. Mm. So if we think of um, yeah, you know, mental health as as that sort of um, continuum, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, we, we can look at it from a wellness perspective, which has been written about by Audrey Holland. Um, so that humanistic and that it belong, you know, mental health relates to all humans. So when we bring into the context of post-stroke aphasia, well, the stroke is a medical emergency. As you mentioned, it is a life-threatening health issue. So we enter into the health system, Mm. and health system, health is actually defined uh, by the World Health Organization as biopsychosocial well-being. So it's a state, health is a state of optimal biological or physical well-being, social well-being, and psychological well-being. Um, but in health systems, the focus is often on the biological, the the physical, which then you know links in with that pathology or an illness to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, grief is not a problem to be fixed. It is um, an experience to be acknowledged and to be to be supported. I yeah. guess. So, before one last point, <laughs> that emotional lability is actually a common occurrence as well. So, when we get into um, stroke, where it is brain injury, we are talking about physical impairment. Mm. So um, a study by Gillespie uh, and colleagues in 2016 that found that emotional ability or pseudobulba effect, 
affects one in five stroke survivors in the acute and post-acute stages, and about one in eight survivors beyond six months post-stroke. And crying is the most common presentation. So I think it is beneficial for speech pathologists to understand and to be able to identify that there is a physical or uh, an impairment um, uh, level um, Mm. issue here called emotional ability but then you know being able to differentiate that and this is where that support with stroke specialist um, multidisciplinary team psychologists can help understand and better support um, these emotional issues Mm. because no doubt for this particular gentleman that I was working with there was an element of both it wasn't that I was entirely incorrect in my notes um but there was that inter interaction between those clinical diagnosis and his psychological well-being absolutely so it is um getting into that biopsychosocial model because um depression um understanding depression and when i talk about depression and anxiety or mood disorders we're talking about clinically diagnostic disorders which gets into the sphere of psychologists and um you know it is not one or the other it's not just a cause of a biological impairment it is a interaction of uh, those three domains and that's again you know we 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 can um be supported by people who address psychological disorders which are psychologists we've talked a bit about psychological well-being but i understand that that's a term can you tell me what you mean when you refer to psychological well-being yeah so i i mentioned that health is um a three domain um model or framework including the physical the psychological and social well-being so it's an optimal state where those three domains are um optimal uh, and not just the absence of a disease or disability so uh, psychological well-being i also mentioned is a spectrum so it can one end it's a disorder and on the other end is flourishing and our definition is based on a um a report in defining psychological well-being for the whole population. So it's not specific to stroke, it's a human population. Um, And it's defined as a, a dynamic state where the individual is able to cope with the stresses of daily life, uh, developed his or her potential, work creatively and productively, build positive relationships, and contribute to their community. Psychological well-being um, is enhanced when an individual is for, uh, able to fulfill their personal and social goals and achieve the sense of purpose in society. So as you can see, it so relates to aphasia rehabilitation and people with aphasia uh, and their families' life participation mm, goals. Yeah, so it's, uh, that it's not it's, just about... Uh, them within themselves but them being a member of the community and contributing to the community 
Absolutely. And that, you know, ability to build positive relationships. We talked about aphasia being the link to being able to do that and our mm. work in supporting. We're so reliant um, on language. Yeah, partner training, conversation partner training all relates to that one aspect of uh, the multidimensionality of psychological well-being. Mm. Thank you. And I guess that ties in with my next question that I wanted to ask Jazz, which is about how do you feel that post-stroke counselling fits within our scope of practice as speech pathologists? Yeah, so counselling is definitely within speech language, uh, speech pathologist scope of practice. So our professional standards um, launched in 2020 uh, under the domain three states that speech pathologists um, are committed to person, family and community centered practice. Further under that domain, uh, point five states that we provide counseling within the scope of speech pathology role in relation to communication and swallowing, and refer to other professionals as required. The ASHA scope of practice, American uh, Speech and Hearing Association, they talk a little bit more about the role um, and the processes. So their statement says the role of speech pathologists in counseling processes includes interactions related to emotional reactions, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that result from living with a communication disorder or swallowing disorder or related disorder. Mm. So if I define counselling broadly and counselling is being is used by all health professionals, um, we, we counsel in our everyday life. Mm. Uh, counselling is a is skills, um, skilled conversation with the aim to assist someone. So it can be broadly defined as a purposeful and skilled conversation in arising from the intention of one person, family or couple, to reflect on and resolve a problem with the help of another person, and in this case, the speech pathologist, to assist in solving that problem or in that endeavor. So counselling is, is um, are teaching people, uh, learning strategies to help people change either their thought, cognitive, mm-hmm. their feelings, affective, or behaviours, how they act. So, yeah, we, we definitely do it. People, speech pathologists may not actually even know that they are practising right. counselling. Yeah, it's absolutely inherently part of every element of speech pathology practice isn't it there is no um there is no realm of speech pathology in which we could avoid it if we wanted to a hundred percent counseling skills and the attitude of counseling or um the the actions that we or the processes of counseling is inherent in every interaction our nonverbal, um, even when we are looking gathering information in case history or from the families because families are involved as being co-diagnosticians mm. in moving forward uh, or resolving a, a client's uh, problem or moving forward goals well that's counseling yeah thinking about the provision of aphasia therapy, you know, we talked about um, 
family members before and, and often we see um, people with aphasia who have spouses and and they're so often included in the, um, the therapy that we do and particularly when we're doing things like communication partner training. I know that there's been um, a lot of research over the last few years looking at third-party disability um, and I imagine that there are developments in that idea of um, spouses of people with communication impairments having third-party disability as a result of this. Has your research touched on that at all, on the, the impact on spouses and, and what counselling might look like for a speech pathologist in that setting? Yes, thanks for that question. The aims of stroke and aphasia rehabilitation is to support and enable the stroke survivor and their families and or significant others to live their best life possible after stroke. So all rehabilitation, whether it's aphasia rehabilitation or what the physio OT does, is it, it works in concert to try to um, enable this whole client um, unit mm. to live the best life possible. So as I mentioned before, relationships are built and maintained through conversations. Yeah. And we know aphasia affects conversations and so relationships are also highly impacted. Um, mm. There is some work done, uh, starting to be done, looking at the family um, dynamics uh, and impact of aphasia uh, by Brooke Ryan on children with parents of aphasia oh, yeah. so there's work being done there there's there's quite a lot of work um, that demonstrate the impacts um, that on family including marital marital breakdown um, you know uh, increased stress burden uh, um, and even depression yeah. um, so we know of uh, depression frequencies are also higher for family members of people with post-stroke aphasia, with approximately 46% of families, uh, family members experiencing depression um, in one study. Yeah. So in our work and my work, uh, we've included that in part of the education um, program that we developed. Um, so education for understanding and effectively working with families, uh, including managing conflict, family sensitive and cultural sensitive counselling approaches. So to help speech pathologists identify and utilise strengths of family members yeah. and the family systems to support coping and adjusting to life after stroke and aphasia. Mm. So you touched on the program that you guys developed just now. I understand that you developed that program after doing a study to look at what was the state of counselling education for speech pathologists and speech pathology students um, to support psychological well-being in post-stroke aphasia. Can you tell me about what you found there? Yeah, so we investigated um, counselling well, we, our systematic review was the first study and we looked at um, the enablers of um, speech pathologists feeling confident to address psychological well-being. So we looked at both um, 
pre-qualification in um, education as well as post-qualification education. And we found no studies from Australia. So we thought we'd better, <laughs> we better, um, yeah, we decided to um, do a survey to find out that, yes, the current um, uh, state of counselling education for speech pathology students in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the majority of American and Australian universities. Um, so there were studies from uh, the US that we based our survey uh, okay. to Australia on. Yep. And uh, the results basically found that the majority of American and Australian universities, about 80%, reported to provide counseling education to speech pathology students. Mm-hmm. However, um, the counseling s- uh, education specifically to address um, supporting psychological well-being in post-stroke aphasia mm-hmm. was very limited. So about 30% uh, pr- reported that they provide some um, counselling education for yeah. that client group. Um, of note, though, in Australia, that uh, not all universities report to provide counselling education. So some graduates um, in Australia would have not experienced um any counseling which is incredible isn't it when you think about how deeply entrenched it is in our work and our work across um all of those settings and and client groups it's interesting when i was reading your research paper before this interview i did a um quick survey of the clinicians in my office and said did you get any education about counselling at university. We've all been to different universities, the five of us. And um, our our newest graduate who graduated in uh, 2021, um, she said, yeah, I got one hour. I did get one hour um, of explicit counselling education um, in her degree, but the rest of us couldn't recall that we had. Now, of course, it it may have been delivered and, and we hadn't recalled it. Um, but we all left university without the feeling that we had any explicit knowledge of counselling, which it's, yeah, it feels like a gap. It is a gap. It is a gap. So our... um, it is common as well. So um, our pilot study that we ran to test out this counselling module, counselling mm. education program, uh, the demographic information that we uh, gained um, just speaks to exactly your um your sense or the the current state because I think it was 78% of speech pathologists um, reported they had little of less than a day or none uh, of of education um, in any time. So right across even uh, pre-qualification or even during their work life. So mm-hmm. it is a big gap um, and it is not uncommon. Um, Counselling education, uh, you know, there, although it's reported by 80% of universities, it could be, as you say, not explicit could be very generic, could be very uh, limited to um, two or three um, skilled behaviours 
for example, mm. I hear establishing rapport uh, very frequently defined or, you know, uh, e- equivalent to counseling behavior. And it's, it's one aspect, an important aspect, uh, but counseling includes a skill set of behaviors um, that includes attending behaviors, questioning skills, um, and, but also a, a process skill. So learning how to manage conflict, how to support families, how to structure um, the session, how to continue the session, how to end the session. Mm. There are multiple facets um, of of the skill set of of counseling that we've tried to include in our program so um yeah yeah after after so in that our systematic review so we understood you know in our survey coming back to the survey of um, speech pathology um, students yes we're finding that the, the training is generic so very few um, address the specific client disorder um, type or the issues required uh, by specific groups like people with aphasia. Um, But after qualifications, we found that speech pathologists go and seek counselling elsewhere. So we know it's so important that they seek counselling training from their colleagues at workplaces or external qualifications um, or short courses, etc. So... Mm. So let's talk more about this pilot program. Um, yeah. Let's move. Let's move on to that because so you've you've identified that it's a it's a need and that that it's a particular need um, with that specialized skill set for post stroke aphasia, and so your research then put together this pilot program. Can you tell me about tell me more about it? Yeah. So the edu- counselling education program was developed based on the studies that we've done. So information from that systematic review um, of the facilitators or the enablers of to to, um, to speech pathologists feeling confident in supporting psychological well-being, yep. and then we took information from current counselling education provided to speech pathologist students, specifically those that information for supporting the psychological well-being of people with post-stroke aphasia, and more importantly, the stepped model for psychological care after stroke. So, okay, let's define that. Yes. So this model... Um, uh, was developed uh, it's actually a framework for interdisciplinary psychological care after stroke um, called the stepped model and it outlines the roles and responsibilities for the whole multi-d team um, mm. in the assessment and management of emotional and cognitive conditions after stroke so it were it came about when it was identified that stroke survivors and families were not getting the psychological supported uh, support that they wanted within stroke services um, and we know that this gap is uh, more or bigger for people with aphasia because mm. speech pathologists feel they don't have the skills and um, there is also studies to, to show that um, uh, stroke teams or health professionals working in stroke um, feel quite uncomfortable and underconfident working with people with aphasia. That feels so, so this... true to my experience. Yeah. The rest of the team take a big step back as well. 
Absolutely. So this framework was co-designed with clinical research and stroke survivors, including those with aphasia, um, and included the continuum of stroke services from hospital and community. So one point you raised earlier on, um, Moira, was that uh, moments of transition we have uh, in, in the research we have to be more mindful of people's emotional um, state especially when they are transitioning uh, or ending you know that discharge yeah. falling off the cliff kind of experience and yeah. we have to um, be mindful to en- ensure that support services include that well-being um, in that transition. I think it's something that we support so well in paediatrics that we recognise transition points as very important points in in caregiving and that we um, are much better at recognising those and putting those supports in place. But in in my experience of working from acute hospital settings to community settings, transitions are aren't well supported and for people who um, you know are very vulnerable in terms of their psychological well-being it's another point of anxiety um, that 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 does need to be better supported absolutely so it's a so these are you know you've definitely identified these process points i guess in the stroke journey or the stroke rehabilitation journey so um this the central tenant of the step care approach is that yeah. the whole multi d team take responsibility for the identification and management of psychological issues and that there are clearly established referral pathways to specialist support services in this in this case um, for severe psychological con- concerns. So the step model has well initially the first model was three and then uh, Professor Ian Nibon has um, added a fourth level. So the level one describes uh, the sub-threshold psychological problems as I mentioned common to all people with stroke. And this uh, psychological support at level one could be provided by peers, so aphasia group peers or um, other stroke survivors with aphasia and stroke specialist staff that are not mental health clinicians, so like speech pathologists. And this, the framework expects that the psychological support at level one to be carried alongside discipline-specific therapy, so, for example, aphasia therapy. So level two then defines mild to moderate symptoms of impaired mood, and at this level, um, psychological support can be addressed by non-psychology stroke staff, but only those who are adequately trained and who are experienced clinicians with the support of clinical psychology or neuroscience. And level three and level four require the special um, uh, expertise of clinical psychologists and neuropsychologists and psychiatrists um, to undertake the interventions for severe and persistent disorders of mood, including uh, severe challenging behaviours after stroke. So we used, yeah, so we used the stepped model um, as a basis of our program, but focused on developing um, education knowledge of the theory and assessment and management um, processes at the level one. 
yeah, lovely, okay. And that's the level that we would expect most speech pathologists to be able to deliver, to confidently deliver interventions at. Yeah. All right, so tell me more about this program. So we, um, it was developed on La Trobe University's learning management system, the Moodle, and comprises of seven hours of self-paced learning. So mm-hmm. uh, the whole program was delivered online yep. because we ran the pilot during COVID lockdowns. <laughs> uh, and so we had, you know, but there was evidence, there is evidence that um, online learning and education is um, as effective or can yeah. be effective. Um, so we, it's, it makes it very it's, accessible for rural clinicians like myself. Absolutely. So, in fact, yeah, we initially were uh, recruiting from Melbourne or were planning to run the pilot just in Melbourne, but it actually the um, the lockdowns allowed us to open it up to all the eastern states of uh, Australia. So it uh, comprises of seven hours of self-paced learning, which mm-hmm. we allowed clinicians to do over five weeks and then one hour a one three hour workshop where clinicians uh could practice their counseling skills with peers so we broke broke out into groups of threes um i was not there in the in the breakout rooms and clinicians who've all went um underwent that training together could then practice their knowledge in a safe space yeah so we had seven sections Uh, the first section was uh, navigation instructions the second section covered roles and responsibilities for supporting psychological well-being within a multi-d team and the stepped model for psychological care Um, section three aimed to improve speech pathologist knowledge and understanding of counseling theory and foundation counseling skills And then to be able to apply these to speech pathology practice in general and specifically to post-stroke aphasia rehab. Um, Section four, introduce the knowledge and skills required for recognizing and responding to a range of emotional and psychological issues that we discussed experienced by people with post-stroke aphasia. Section five, provided information about about the workshop. And section six provided um, information about a qualitative study and um, section seven uh, was references. Lovely. So thinking about the outcomes of that study, how did clinicians apply that knowledge? What did they learn? What did you find? Yeah, so our main measure that we used uh, was a the um, self-efficacy for counselling in post-stroke aphasia survey. It was an adaption of Victorino and Hinkle's self-efficacy measurement tool for counselling in speech pathology. And it consists of 35 closed questions. So self-efficacy relates to the clinician's own perceived belief in how confident they feel they can do those counseling skills so perceived confidence uh, was rated on a six-point scale so I'm not familiar with the concept to being completely confident Mm -hmm. and the questions covered um, areas like emotional support skills session management skills helping skills to build insight 
helping skills for exploring or exploration and helping skills to facilitate action. So we also created a secondary measure specifically for post-stroke aphasia rehabilitation. So in this measure, clinicians were asked to rate their confidence to recognize and respond to anxiety, depression, and suicide ideation. So clinicians were also asked to rate their confidence to manage their own psychological well-being Mm -hmm. and that of the colleagues in their stroke team. So we know self-care, especially in post-stroke aphasia um, for clinicians and the team, was also an enabler in in the Mm. research that we found. Um, So specifically to the area of level one intervention, we also asked clinicians, and this was trained in the module, to use uh, how they felt they were confident in using problem-solving and person-centered approaches with uh, in clients. And the, the final question was to rate their own competency for counselling. And how did it change? How did it change? So we <laughs> question. So we had did it two. Change? Yeah, it did it did? We had some good results. So we had two. Um, uh, we had a qualitative aspect. We wanted to know if the pilot program, uh, the program was feasible for busy clinicians. You know, mm. so whether we're going to get a lot of dropouts, people will they attend the first part, uh, the complete the first part as well as the workshop. So. Yeah. Uh, we found, yeah, we enrolled 51 participants and um, randomized 49, so a few dropped out earlier on. And uh, we found that we had 90% of the participants attended the workshops. And um, at the end, yeah, we had about 84 participants completed both aspects of the trial and completed the whole trial. So we had people stay on and do the whole course, which was very um, good to know that it was actually doable. Um, And for quantitative results, we analyzed the data and we found that uh, the module, the program, the education program was significant in changing speech pathologist self-belief and self-rating in their competency and um, confidence for counselling in post-stroke aphasia. We also um, uh, analysed to see if the effects were maintained at five weeks follow-up, and we found that, yes, the results were significant and those results were maintained at five weeks follow-up for both their self-belief, the self-efficacy and self-rated competency for counselling. Were all of the clinicians working um, in a in a setting where they would have some interaction with people with post stroke aphasia? Yep, that was part of the eligibility criterion. That so they um, were able to use those skills as they were acquiring them. Absolutely. So the um, education used adult learning principles with um, the. Um, the adult learning principles kind of ascertain or say that the skills that you use are targeted to current uh, needs Mm. and that 
we encouraged uh, clinicians to reflect on their learning as in and use um, trial out their skills in a real way um, mm. as they are learning. So um, this reflection, uh, we had a lot of reflective activities, um, case studies, mm. videos. Um, or, so clinicians would watch a video. Uh, we have a checklist where they learn the definition of that um, skill and then um, re-rate their uh, new knowledge um, on the videos again. So there's well, there were a lot of different learning mechanisms, I guess, mm. uh, embedded in the um, education program. It sounds super brilliant. Is there any chance that other clinicians are going to be able to enroll in this program in the future? <laughs> Ah, uh, wish yes. Thank you. That's a great. Uh, that's lovely feedback. Um, we are so we are uh, we have collected um, some interview data of six speech pathologists who, thank you, kindly volunteered um, their feedback about the program, and mm. that's my next to do to analyze that. <laughs> And to tweak the program as best as possible. So, mind you, you this is was a pilot. Uh, so, mm. and uh, it's it's sitting. It definitely our aim is to um, try to um, make this into a short course um, because it's ten hours of learning. So, um, the two aspects are are interdependent. They are part of the program. So there is a self-directed online knowledge component, I guess, and then a skill practice component. Um, so in a nutshell, yes, that is definitely part of the idea. And that's the next step. We are in discussion with, uh, you know, funding bodies uh, and the aphasia CRE to, to see how we can um, translate this this information. So we've we've developed this program, we've tested it out, and we found that it has preliminary efficacy and certainly feasibility. So uh, we are hoping to to translate this to make it available to anybody and anybody who and everyone who wants to take it. When it will happen is very difficult yep. to say. <laughs> but yes, that's definitely the um, idea. Yeah. In the interim, though, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I think oh, that might be your next question. <laughs> it absolutely is. <laughs> but let's just launch there because I, you've picked exactly that what I'm trying to pick apart is what is it that I can do now? What resources can I find what learning can I engage in so that the next time I visit my gentleman with aphasia, that I am best placed to support him in his grief and to recognise who he is and what he needs and, and support his journey through this difficult part of his life. Yes. Um... 
Yeah, definitely, I would say in the first instance, uh, because stroke is uh, stroke rehabilitation requires multidisciplinary um, team intervention. I would make friends with your psychologists or social workers or even occupational therapists um, who may have a little bit more mental health training than we do. And to have coffee with them and discuss um, sourcing counseling education as a professional development seminar or a, you know an in-house PD thing uh, where mm. you identify those uh, training options at level one. So the training. Yeah, I really, at, I yeah. love that idea of, you know, I really wasn't familiar with the step psychological um, care after stroke framework, and I I love how you've explained that that what level one looks like and um, the in-house possibilities there because I you know I do work for a health service and so there are those professionals in the team and and getting in servicing that's not a huge um, a huge ask I guess no, absolutely not. And so you know those level one interventions that speech pathologists, can learn and um, are expected to almost have um, that knowledge and skill set of is things like problem solving and solution focused approaches, uh, motivational interviewing, counseling training. So those micro skill yeah. um, sets. I'm probably doing incidentally, but uh, but explicitly, it's lovely to be able to hang it on a framework. And I, uh, yeah. Absolutely. So these, so counselling is a purposeful activity. It is explicitly. So, you know, if you go to say, all right, I'm about to challenge this person with my next comment because I Mm. want this person to step back and look, think differently or feel differently, you are actually enacting a counselling skill. I was about to reflect back on how beautiful your simplistic definition of counselling was earlier. For me, that's really useful for for you to say that counselling is purposefully helping people change, helping them think differently, helping them feel differently and helping them act differently. For me, that is a really helpful and simple definition that lets me recognize you know when I am talking to somebody where am I working and how am I working that I find that a a really useful little um, definition thank you now that it but it is you know simple things are really hard to do in practice (laughs) when we are focused on you know getting our language therapy done or our naming um activities yeah no trying to do trying to do the best job that you can across all of those um areas of practice yeah it is the it is the little incidentals that often when I return back to the office and I'm reflecting on it's those things that I that I wish that I could, you know, like when my naming therapy is not going well, I've got so many resources to pull on to say, why isn't it going well? What was the breakdown? What can I improve? What's evidence-based and where to next? But for those, you know, managing somebody's tears, I don't have those little things that, that I go back to. And so it's so nice to have, 
yeah, to have that kind of framework for me to yeah. know that I can return to and that I can um, yeah. evaluate my practice and change my practice that way. Yeah, so certainly a lot of the evidence uh, that we based on, including the stepped care, as I mentioned, were ba- is based on um, multiple um, um, research projects um, looking at this interdisciplinary team uh, learning, I guess, learning yeah. to work with people with aphasia's language, but also learning to deal with their emotion and psychological health. Um, so, so apart from the team, Speech yep. Pathology Australia have also teamed up with Lifeline Australia and I, I believe are running courses for speech pathologists um, to support, to learn how, you know, to support emotional health, um, including sitting with distress um, and some and counselling skills. So those could be useful. Yeah, lovely. Um, yeah. So but, I just go into Lifeline Australia to have a look at what short courses they have available. Yep. And lastly, two other resources I would say is the Stroke Foundation Inform Me website. Uh, they have motivational interviewing mm-hmm. courses uh, specific to do with uh, specifically relating to stroke, um, and also the Aphasia Center for Research Excellence resource page. There would be plenty in there too, including past webinars. Brilliant! Thank you so much. Jazz, I think we need to finish up, but I want to really thank you for your conversation today, for your thoughtful um, contributions to the research and to say how um, grateful I am to have people like you completing this research so that the rest of us can grow our practice. It's been really wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you, Maura, for having me and um, and also thank you to Speech Pathology Australia for um, inviting me. And I'd just like to say that if there's any further questions, comments, reflections, please don't hesitate to contact me via La Trobe University. Uh, we can add my email there um, in, in the pod um, chat notes, I would say. But thanks again for this opportunity. Thank you. And thank you to everybody for listening. Um, Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday as another episode will be launched. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.